Kicking the Bear. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, editor at QuorumReport.com, and here as always, and I think he was up all night with the Texas Senate, just like I was, as they were debating voting rights and, as some put it, suppressing your right to vote. Jeremy Wallace at the Houston Chronicle and HoustonChronicle.com. How are you, sir? I am doing all right. I don't care if I have two hours of sleep or eight hours of sleep. You'll still get the full, full deal. You still get the full story, a complete exactly. coverage. I'm uh, still Quorum on Rep- duty, no matter yeah. what. <laughs> QuorumReport.com, HoustonChronicle.com. We never stop working for you. Now, I thought, Jeremy, it would be appropriate to talk in sort of philosophical terms about what's going on with voting rights in Texas. And and it, and here's why. Because the exact details of what they're going to eventually pass on this, which they are going to pass something, I think, this is one of Governor Abbott's priorities All the Republican leadership is basically philosophically on the same page, but there are some details to be worked out in a legislative process. How long was the debate yesterday? I think it was around eight hours at least. Yeah, I lost count somewhere after hour seven. I stopped, you know, figuring out the numbers. They were six hours into talking about Senate Bill 7 right before midnight when the Senate voted to actually start formally debating the bill. Right. Um, what they do in the Texas Senate, and I'll, I'll let you legislative uh, folks nerd out on this one. What they do in the Texas Senate is they suspend the regular order of business to be able to take up and consider whatever piece of legislation. Here's what that means. So each bill has a number, right? There's Senate Bill 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, all the way to you know thousands. And the rules say that they have to take the bills up in order unless they vote to suspend the regular order of business and take up a bill, which is what they do every day that they're in session just about, right? Yep. In other words, there are rules in the Senate, but not really. <laughs> that's, that's a short way to think about it. So this bill, Senate Bill 7, it is sweeping in scope. It does a lot of different things to uh, the voting processes in Texas. And correct me if I'm wrong, Jeremy, it seems like it's very specifically targeted in a lot of ways at when, what went on in Harris County. I think you've made this point before. Last year, local government in Harris County, under the then county clerk, uh, Chris Hollins, and the county judge, Lena Hidalgo, um, they made a lot of accommodations for people during the COVID-19 pandemic. And we saw record turnout, not just there, but all across the state and the country. I think the fact that the governor allowed for more early voting in person was certainly a big factor for Texas. But things they were doing, uh, doing in Houston, they seem to not like at the Texas Capitol, right? They're, they've taken aim at things like um, drive-through voting um, and 24-hour early voting and things like that, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and But it's let's be clear. They're not the only place that was doing things, you okay. know, right? The Republicans love to talk about Harris County because they've become kind of almost like an Austin punchline. You know, those mm-hmm. rogue Democrats were trying to, you know, send out ballots to everybody or something like that. Uh, but there are other counties. You know, it's like we know down in the valley, uh, there were counties. I believe Cameron County also had drive-through voting. Uh, and so it's not the only place. It's just like, but it's the only place Republicans in the legislature really want to talk about. Yeah. So at 2 a.m., the Senate gave final approval to Senate Bill 7. Over in the Texas House, the uh, House version of it is being heard in a committee right now. 
after what I will politely call a screw-up by the chairman of the Elections Committee last week. Basically, he made a procedural error, and the hundreds of people who had come to testify on the bill last week didn't get to testify, and now they are. So there are a lot of people who are uh, talking about elections once again today, as we're doing the podcast. Just after 2.30 in the morning, Senator Brian Hughes, after passing this bill, Senate Bill 7, uh, he admitted that, look, this is just one of the first steps in the process, the Senate bill version that's been heard in a committee, and it also had a hiccup, by the way, it was about a week late as well, uh, but passed through the Senate last night, and now they're on Easter break. As we're working, the Senate's on Easter break now. So Hughes said in a Facebook video that he looks forward to seeing what the Texas House does on this issue of voting rights. Uh, Beginning yesterday and going for several hours straight, Uh, The Senate passed Senate Bill 7, which is an omnibus election integrity bill. This bill is about making it easy to vote and hard to cheat. Had a long debate, uh, scores of amendments were offered, and at the end of the day, the Texas Senate passed a strong election integrity bill that we can be proud of. It heads over to the House now for more work, and election integrity bills continue to move through the process. There's a slate of bills. Uh, the big ones, as I mentioned, are SB7, and the House version is HB6. That's by Briscoe Kane of Deer Park in the Houston area. Um, as this debate was unfolding, one of the moments that got a lot of people's attention, I saw uh, on social media and elsewhere, and you pointed this out in your coverage, Jeremy, Senator Boris Miles, a Democrat of Houston, sort of unironically was thanking the Republican leadership and uh, Senator Hughes in particular for carrying this bill. And it's interesting. I'm going to let folks listen to this. Senator Miles, who has um, been accused by the Harris County Republican Party of being um, a cheater in elections, and he brought that up on the Senate floor. It's very emotional for him. Yeah. Um, he thanks Hughes here because the case that Miles is making is that to do this, to, to pass legislation that makes it harder for people to vote, is going to motivate Democrats to get out in even bigger numbers than we have already seen in this state, which is trending toward the Democratic Party. I want to thank you sincerely because what you're doing here tonight is kicking a bear. You're waking a beast. In the times that we're living in now, with people marching for social injustice, in the times we're living in now, that people aren't afraid to protest. In the times we're living in right now, where our young folks are ready, fired up, and willing to go, ready to be heard, ready to be seen, ready to act. They're getting organized and mobilized. What SB7 is doing, I want to thank you, brother, because you know not what you do. Because I can assure you of one thing. And believe me, if you never believe anything I said to you, my brother, before, please believe this. We're not going to stand by on our generational watch and reverse our constitutional right and our civil rights and allow our voting process to be, allow us to be suppressed by SB7. 
Jeremy, I wonder what you thought when you were hearing that, but I'll say this first. I have heard a similar argument from Democrats previously when different voting restrictions were being debated in the Texas legislature. But I do think that the dynamic is different now, especially following the big, what people have called the big lie after the 2020 election uh, with President Trump, the former president and his supporters, arguing that the reason that Trump lost was because there was some voter fraud. And in a lot of ways, this has the potential to be the big issue of the legislative session, I think, from the motivation of the base of each party standpoint. Republicans are so fired up because there are so many of them who really believe what I just said, that that Trump lost because there was some fraud. Democrats, on the other hand, and this was mentioned in the debate last night, they believe that, um, look, the Republicans are moving to keep their people from Voting, The people who would typically vote for Democrats are being sort of shut out of the process, and they don't want to allow that to happen. What do you think? Well, one of the things, when you hear what Boris Miles was saying, the one, you know, or actually the two words that caught me was our generational watch. You know, it's like, you know, you got to think about that from, you know, a black man's perspective in Mm -hmm. Houston uh, and understand where they're coming from here. It's like the, the one of the biggest pieces of the bill that, like, you know, people have obviously, you know, focused on the drive-through voting mm-hmm. being cut, the early voting hours would be, you know, reduced, yeah. uh, you know, how you handle, you can't send mail, uh, you know, or absentee ballot applications to anybody. Uh, you have to, you, you can only do it when people request it, things like mm-hmm. that. That's all in the bill. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But really, maybe the uh, the most important piece to this that's really inflaming a lot of passion in black and Hispanic communities is this part that allows poll watchers to videotape people at a polling site. Oh, yeah. uh, if somebody thinks there's something suspicious going on, the poll watcher... You know, who is just a partisan, you know, this is not a government employee, this is just a partisan who's been put into the polling place, can mm-hmm. videotape that black or Hispanic or any person, of course. But the way black and Hispanic communities are seeing, seeing this, they're like, oh my gosh, we did this before. You know, those folks, if you talk to some of the older folks who've been around in the 60s and 70s, they will tell you about the times that there were people taking pictures of them mm-hmm. when they would go to vote after the Voting Rights Act were passed yeah. uh, uh, in the 60s. People would take their picture while they were voting, and then they would take it to their employer in town mm-hmm. and say, look who voted. And right. then that person would lose their job. Right. And so it was kind of a form of intimidation. And again, if you're Hispanic or black and you live through that, and now you're seeing that what makes this more different, you know, much more difficult for them is that this isn't a government employee that's going to be doing the videotaping. Mm-hmm. It's literally going to be a poll watcher. Yeah. And I, as I was talking to the head of the NAACP in Texas earlier this morning, uh, Gary Bledsoe, he told me, it's like, these poll watchers often are nothing more than vigilantes. You know, these are the most partisan of partisan people who are often spending 12 hours in a neighborhood they're not familiar with. Mm-hmm. And they're going to be sitting there with a camera able to record your every movement. But you can't record yourself in that place. You are barred from bringing your cell phone and recording anything you see at that polling site mm-hmm. unless you're a poll watcher, a partisan poll watcher. And so watch the debate on this. And you heard a lot of it last night you know, yeah. during the debate mm-hmm. about like what this means if you're a black person or a Hispanic person mm-hmm. and now you have you know, somebody who doesn't agree with you videotaping you from the moment you step into the polling location to the time you cast a ballot. 
Yeah, all of these restrictions that would be put in place uh, only for people of color. It's, it, you know, I mean, uh, think about the kind of tests that uh, black folks used to be subjected to in the South and in, yep. in Texas, where it's like, yeah, you can register to vote. How many jelly beans are in that jar? Yeah. Right. Things like that. Can you list all of the state capitals alphabetically? Go. <laughs> the thing is, they would not ask white people those questions, right? So. In Harris County, there were some reactions, uh, as I mentioned. Uh, a lot of this seemed to be targeted at what was going on in Houston. As you said, though, they were doing some of these things in other places as well. Here's Harris County Judge Lena Hidalgo talking about this entire package of election legislation. It is a, a tragic attack on the most sacred right and a right that makes our democracy what it is, and that is the right to vote. That's from uh, This Is News. You ever see this website? Yeah. <laughs> um, they uh, they always put the music in the background of, of what the folks are saying. She says it wasn't just Democrats who came out in record numbers last year when local government was making all these accommodations to try to keep people safe during a pandemic. We had the highest turnout in a generation. It was beautiful, and it was folks from both parties that voted in historic numbers. So the people that are trying to pass this voter suppression legislation, obviously they think that passing it is going to disadvantage the uh, urban areas, is going to disadvantage the Democrats. And the sad part is ultimately it will disadvantage both parties. Beto O'Rourke was on hand last week to talk about these uh, bills, both Senate Bill 7 and House Bill 6. But guess what? On House Bill 6, he didn't get to talk, at least not to lawmakers. Now, why was that? I'm going to put it nicely again. The chairman of the House Elections Committee messed up. He's a first-time chairman. As some veterans of the legislative process would say, he's a baby chairman. So he's a smart guy, but he doesn't always know what he's doing, right? And 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 the House uh, processes are, are complicated for a reason. The, the rules, as I said, in the Senate, the rules don't matter so much because they suspend the rules all the time. In the House, the rules are very important. You have to follow them. So the, the short version of what happened was there were about 200 people signed up to testify, including O'Rourke and a lot of others, some for and some against this election legislation. Um, and the chairman of the committee, Briscoe Kane, Deer Park, Texas, um, he tried to take a recess in the committee. And what happened was he didn't say what time they were going to come back from the recess, which he has to do. And if he doesn't do that, then it creates a point of order on the legislation, which means that it could kill the legislation when it gets to the floor of the full Texas House of Representatives. It's a transparency uh, deal, Jeremy. If they, It's the same as when they say we're going to have a meeting at 9 a.m. and people want to come and give their testimony on something. If they recess the meeting, they need to say the meeting is going to start again at 1 o'clock or whatever time they're going to yeah. start again so that people know when they need to show up if they're going to give their testimony. Right? That, that seems pretty basic. So he messed up, and they had to reschedule the hearing for this week. So it's going on while we're talking right now. Former Congressman O'Rourke says that this whole thing is a farce. He spoke to uh, one of the television stations, KXAN, in Austin. The instance of voter fraud in Texas over the last uh, four or five years is 0.000000442%. Uh, you have a, a greater chance of being struck by lightning than you do of participating in voter fraud. <laughs> he says the legislature should be addressing a whole host of other issues. We do know that we have real problems. In the last two years, 110 Texans have been killed in mass shootings. 
We know that more than 80 Texans died in this re recent winter storm, literally froze to death because the state could not guarantee that the electricity would work. And then we have nearly 50,000 Texans dead of COVID. So I would urge uh, the members on this committee to focus on those real challenges uh, before they try to, to come up with a problem that doesn't exist. Now, in fairness, the Republican leadership is doing some things about some of the things that he brought up, including uh, passing some legislation just this past week uh, having to do with the electricity grid. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. Uh, but Jeremy, I mentioned that right off the bat here that they passed this sweeping election bill in the middle of the night. If I sound uh, a little hazy and look bleary-eyed to you on the Zoom meeting here, it's because I was up with them the whole time. That's what goes on in the middle of the night. What do Republicans want people to remember about this week? Well, that's what you see prime time on Fox News Channel. Immigration and border security. That is the thing that Republican leadership is talking about every chance they get, not just Governor Abbott, not just the Speaker of the House, but of course, your Fox News correspondent, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Now, he was on, I believe, with Shannon Bream uh, on Fox News Channel, and Shannon had him respond to what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been saying about this surge of migrants on the border. We've seen a lot of these stories, uh, right? And you had Senator Cruz, Senator Cornyn, and others traveling to the border to check it all out. We'll hear from Cruz in just a little bit. But here's what uh, AOC had to say about the terminology uh, of saying that there's a surge on the border. I want to say, what about the surge? First of all, just gut check, stop. Anyone who's using the term surge around you consciously is trying to invoke a militaristic frame. This is not a surge. These are children and they are not insurgents and we are not being invaded. Lieutenant Governor Patrick, not impressed. The more I hear her speak, the more I realize she's really clueless about what's going on in the world. She's surely clueless about what's happening on the border. It is a surge. Uh, we're almost double the number of people that we were apprehending just a couple of months ago. In just this month, we apprehended 21,000 people in the, the third week of March and 27,000 people the last week. And by the way, 75% roughly of those that we apprehend, Shannon, are OTMs other than from Mexico. So they're from all over Central, South America, and around the world. What AOC says continues to be idiotic and irresponsible. If you are keeping track at home, what you're listening to is someone from Baltimore debating someone from Brooklyn about what's happening on the Texas-Mexico border. Let's turn to somebody from somewhere else. <laughs> How about somebody from mm, Canada? Uh, Senator Cruz, Ted Cruz, was helping to lead this delegation of lawmakers to the border, and he made a very dramatic video. Did you see this on Twitter? He put out uh, – he's standing there on the river, and he was painting a very grim picture about what's happening uh, down there on the Rio Grande. So it's past midnight. I'm standing on the shore of the Rio Grande. The water is right behind me. I'm down on the Texas border, along with 18 senators. We made the trip to see the crisis that is playing out. And if you look at the video, Jeremy, there is nothing happening behind him. He's talking about the crisis that's playing out, wanting to let people know what's going on. Um, he said that the government has not been putting the resources that are needed into dealing with this humanitarian crisis. We've already gone to detention facilities that are overrun. 
many of them with families, small children. We saw multiple mothers who were nursing infant babies who had just crossed over and were being housed in outdoor holding pens where they were sleeping on the floor and nursing their babies. We're at the edge of the river. On the other side of the river is Mexico. The other side of the river we have been listening to and seeing cartel members, human traffickers, right on the other side of the river, waving flashlights, yelling and taunting Americans, taunting the Border Patrol, because they know that under the current policy of the Biden administration, they can flood over here. They're getting paid four or $5,000 a person to smuggle them into this country. And our policies, when they smuggle them in, the Biden administration releases them. And more and more and more. Last month, 100,000 people came across the border illegally. We've got 15,000 kids in federal government custody. This is a humanitarian crisis. It's a public health crisis. The illegal immigrants who are being released, they're testing positive for COVID-19 at a seven times higher rate than the American population. I will give Senator Cruz some credit for being consistent. Whenever there has been a humanitarian crisis in Texas, he goes to Mexico. Every time. Oh, oh, oh okay. All right. So he, that's what he did during the ice storm. He went to Cancun. Now he's down on the Texas-Mexico border. Look, I'm not making light of what's happening with these people. They come from some of the most impoverished, violent areas. We're talking about immigrants from uh, migrants, I guess I should say, uh, from uh, El Salvador, Honduras, that area, they live under constant threat uh, of violence, extortion. Those are the push factors, right, out of those places where they're coming from. Sometimes there are those factors that attract them to the United States. The Republicans are trying to make the case that President Biden's policies are now attracting all these people to come in. As you have pointed out, Jeremy, what we saw in 2020 was essentially a shutdown of the border because of COVID-19. Right. And so compared to last year, this looks pretty bad. If there's a surge and here's where I would say that AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, where she might not be quite right about this, there is a surge, but it's surge season. Right. We've gotten to spring. What people may not think about if they live in Texas or if they live in some other place that's very far from the border and they don't know anything about it. Down in Mexico, in the mountain ranges, there's snow in the wintertime. It's hard for people to migrate, to move across the country. When that melts in the springtime, they start to move this way. It's not new. This happens all the time. We have seen certain numbers uh, that indicate we might be up or down a little bit compared to some other years in the past. Um, But the fact is, and the Washington Post did a nice uh, rundown on this in the last week where they just looked at the data and they said there's not really a surge going on compared to some of the other years in the past. Um, This is not just Cruz. It's not just Patrick. It's also the new Speaker of the Texas House, Dade Phelan. He was on CBS 11 in Dallas-Fort Worth with uh, reporter Jack Fink. I've been getting daily briefings from DPS, and what they're seeing is a surge that we haven't seen in, in years. Texas House Speaker Dade Phelan calls the surge at the Texas border a humanitarian crisis. And I don't see a real plan from the administration, and it's frustrating, and that's a bipartisan frustration. Phelan says according to the Texas Department of Public Safety, federal and state authorities apprehended more than 21,600 migrants in Texas last week. This week, that number jumped to more than 27,500. Of those apprehended this week, about 9,500 came from Honduras. More than 6,500 were from Mexico. More than 6,100 came from Guatemala. And about 2,000 were from El Salvador. 
And that's just the ones they apprehend. That's not the ones that they get through without being apprehended. Now, after an ice storm, COVID-19, the water crisis in Texas, all these other things, Jeremy, do you want to take a stab at why Republican office holders are so now fixated on talking about the border and what and that that's exactly what they want everyone to take away from this last week and not so much these other things? <laughs> what, what, you, you want to hazard a guess on that? Some... Like why they're talking about the border so much? I don't know. I, I don't know. Is there a Texas primary that, that's going to happen sometime in the next year? Is that year? coming up soon? You know? You know, and and, and yeah. Governor Abbott has talked about this a lot recently. He was also on Fox News Channel as well, and he um, had sort of a meltdown uh, at, uh, you know, some uh, news anchors over at, uh, in Houston, you know, over the issue. Um, this is the thing that they want to stress. We are one year out from the Republican primary, and as we have pointed out, ad nauseum on this program, this is a primary state. Um, And there's a lot of chatter about whether Governor Abbott might face a primary challenger. I saw this um, uh, lawsuit between, who is it, Uh, the Agriculture Commissioner, Sid Miller, suing Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. You had Alan West suing, uh, the chairman of the Republican Party, suing Governor Abbott last year over changes to election law. Um, They've been at each other's throats for a long time in the Republican Party in this state. It's it's not new that Republicans fight with each other uh, in Texas, but it does seem to be at a higher level now. And that's why you hear more chatter about, no predictions, but you hear more uh, folks talking about the idea that maybe Alan West will challenge Governor Greg Abbott, you know, in this next primary. Uh, I do know that in Dallas, and it was in the Dallas Morning News just a couple days ago, uh, former Senator Don Huffines, who I believe his personal net worth is something like a hundred million dollars, something like that. So he could put 10 or $20 million into a race that he's supposedly going to announce for governor against Abbott this month here in April. Uh, And that maybe uh, Sid Miller will run against Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. It could be all out war uh, in the Republican primary. Oh yeah. It's like, we're totally getting into that mode. And one of the things that, you know, everybody's going to have to make sure that they look completely solid on an issue like immigration, right? You know, it's like the the, the modern Republican Party of Texas uh, is all about making sure that border is secure, you know, reducing you know, people coming over the border, things like that. And I, I and, and going to what you said earlier, it's like, yeah, if you take these numbers that we're seeing right now at the border and the apprehensions and compared to the 2019 before the pandemic, there's a similarity in the numbers and even the trend lines. You know, like you mentioned, it's like, in March and April, the numbers grow. You know, you know, they did in 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't. You know, last year everything was a little bit flatter, and but now they're doing it again this yeah. year, right? And it's like, and it's and like you mentioned, it's like where are these people coming from? Is also the question you really need to ask. It's not just like, you know, it's it's frustrating listening to people talk about, uh, you know, the, the Mexicans coming across mm-hmm. the border. It's like, you know, like you pointed out, it's like. The surge right now is, you know, those triangle mm-hmm. countries in Central America, those people leaving Nicaragua, right. Honduras, mm-hmm. you know, they're the ones who are, you know, that's where the, the, the unaccompanied minors are coming mm-hmm. from. It's interesting, the apprehensions and the people being sent back over uh, that are men, uh, single men, are typically Mexican. Right. You know, so go figure that out. And the families that are coming over are, you know, that are being caught are Honduras. Right. And so, so th- well, there's a difference in each type of people that are coming across right. the border. And, and I fear everybody kind of lumping this all together into one and making this look like some Hispanic, 
you know, thing from Mexico when it's just like, come on now. (laughs) There's a difference of what we're seeing and maybe, and you're seeing seeing this with the Mm -hmm. Biden administration, when they put Kamala Harris kind of in charge of this, you know, she started talking about this as an international, you know, foreign affairs type issue, right? She, they're sending her to Nicaragua and Honduras to work with the leaders in those countries mm-hmm. to kind of figure out what's going on there that we can fix and address to keep this pipeline of people coming across the border. Here. Yeah, and in those numbers, men coming from Mexico, women and children coming from those war, war-torn areas, I mean, it's not that hard yes. to figure those numbers out. You think about a culture in which it's still very much the case that the man is the breadwinner. Right. So Mexican yep. men are coming in to care for their families by by working and sending remittances home. Um, women and children are coming to seek asylum. That's what's happening, yep. you know, because they're in these uh, places that are are very violent and uh, are suffering horrible poverty. Um, so we'll continue to track it and see what the response is. The Democrats right now have an opportunity to do something on immigration and border security. The president has made it a priority, as you said, um, and has also said that they're going to work on uh, immigration reform holistically, which is what needs to happen. I was thinking, Jeremy, about the fact, going back to 2006, I remember Governor Perry in one of his re-election ads at that time, so about 15 years ago, standing on the Rio Grande in his Carhartt jacket and saying, <laughs> if Washington won't secure this border, then Texas will. Does that sound familiar yep. to you? He was already oh, in yeah. that race <laughs> when there were four candidates. It was, a, it was a four-way race in November. He was already appealing to the folks who would become the Tea Party. They were the Republicans who were upset with, with the president at the time. In 06, who was president? George Bush. It wasn't some exactly. you know, anti-Democrat thing. It was just anti-Washington, you know, anti-federal government thing. Um, so way back then, they were tapping into this. And as you pointed out, uh, earlier, uh, even this year, uh, in January, uh, some of these same things were being talked about and some of these same numbers being reported. Um, on the energy issue, you may have seen that the U.S. House was holding hearings. Uh, this is the Energy and Commerce Committee, and one of the subcommittees. They were talking specifically about the Texas ice storm and what the federal government might need to do. A lot of this is something that Texas has to figure out on its own, if we're going to continue to have the kind of electricity market that we have in Texas. Very unique. As we pointed out here and others have reported, this is the only state that has its own electric grid, right? There's the Eastern, the Western, Nenner's Texas. The Texas independence guys, the secessionists, they love to point to the fact that we have our own electricity grid. I think what happened a few weeks ago ought to take that out of that arrow out of their quiver (laughs) as far as, you know, whether we could be an independent nation. Um, In this hearing, You have Republicans and Democrats who were questioning a few people from Texas. The Railroad Commissioner uh, Chair, uh, uh, the Railroad Commission Chair is Christy Craddock. The head of ERCOT, Bill Magnus, who's retiring or leaving uh, after what happened uh, in the ice storm. And the mayor of Houston, Sylvester Turner. He was questioned by Dan Crenshaw, Republican of the Houston area. And... Crenshaw was unhappy with Mayor Turner for a variety of reasons. He was, he was unhappy with Turner specifically and Democrats generally uh, about this whole thing, the way it's all been talked about, as if Republicans are trying to make uh, you know, certain issues more prominent than others when we talk about the energy market in Texas. But let's stop building the straw man argument that Republicans are blaming wind. We are not blaming wind. In fact, no one in this hearing has said that because you can't blame something that's inherently unreliable. Okay, 
Next, next thing. Mr. Mayor, your city facilities are not powered by renewables when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. They just aren't. Now, during the storm, 20% of the city's generators would not start. Mr. Mayor, why were these generators not maintained? Do you think it's the federal government's responsibility to maintain those, or can you take responsibility for that? Well, Congressman, there are several things. I'm not asking the federal government to assume responsibility for generators that did not, did not perform. But what I will say to you is that 100% of our city facilities are uh, powered by renewables. Uh, and number two, number three, what I will remind you is that over 67% of the power in the state of Texas is natural gas, coal-fired, and nuclear. Renewables count for a far smaller percentage of gas. And fourth, I voted to deregulate this market in 1999. So generation is deregulated. Our retail electric providers are deregulated. Transmission distribution is regulated. I'm quite familiar with right, right. Okay, Mr. Mayor, yeah, I, 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 I've given you enough time there. If you want to respond to me more, you can actually um, hit, text me back every once in a while. I've got a long list of non-responses from you on my phone. Um, but no, again, it is not true that your city is getting power from solar when there's no sun shining, okay? One thing that that exchange reveals is just how broken the committee process is in Washington. Um, and I don't know how they would fix this, but the way they do it in Washington is the time belongs to the member of Congress and not the person who's testifying. So you've seen them do this over and over again, right? Where they'll say that, uh, you know, Representative Crenshaw gets uh, three minutes or five minutes or whatever, and it's his time. So if he asks a question of Mayor Turner, for example, he's incentivized to cut him off like that because he wants to get as much of his time as he can. Um, the fact that he doesn't text right back, that Mayor Turner does not immediately text him back, I was thinking about the fact that Crenshaw's district basically rings around most of Houston, right, and then gets into parts of Houston as well. Um, but when you have a district that goes out of its way to kind of not be part of the city of Houston and the mayor of the city of Houston doesn't get right back to you all the time, there might be a reason for that. Let me, and and this, is, this is not Crenshaw's fault. He's playing, let's put it this way, he's playing golf. I, I think about these districts, and I'm gonna, I'll have a, a, a long rant about the districts uh, when we get to the real stuff about redistricting. That's coming up later in the session and in the year. It's like they're golfers, okay? It, you, you go out to a, a golf course. Do you play golf, Jeremy? No. Okay, but you do know this, and people don't have to play golf to know what I'm about to say is true. Every course is different right? The holes are different. The The way things are laid out is different. And when you're a politician, you're running in these different districts. It's like you're, you're taking on a different golf course and you've got to perfect your swing for that course. And you've got to figure out how to play it so that you can win. So a guy like Crenshaw is incentivized to be adversarial with the democratic mayor of Houston, right? He, he can't win in his district unless he makes a villain out of the Democratic mayor in Houston. The mayor of Houston's not really incentivized to work with him either, although he might be a little more incentivized because they're part of the same city and same region. The point I'm making is that those local government officials are representing communities of interest, right? They're representing a city or a county, the kind of places that share demographics. They share the same sort of needs from the state and federal government as far as funding for various things, education, transportation, healthcare, you name it. 
But the congressional districts are drawn in such a way that they are uh, designed for partisan advantage. And it doesn't have as much to do with any of the other stuff that I just said. So on the energy issue, back in Austin, Republicans on this issue of wind, uh, Crenshaw said that they're not trying to blame wind. But you would not know that to listen to the Senate debate what it's doing in Austin, right? Oh, absolutely. And, and, and you heard, you know, that line of questioning was really kind of appropriate for what we saw happening in Austin, you know, which is, you know, taking a look at, you know, the, the, the winter storms has brought an intensity from Republicans uh, about wind and solar. Mm-hmm. And what I mean is that, uh, and we've heard this in the hearings, that wind and solar power have gotten so many federal subsidies from the national you know, from Congress mm-hmm. and from, you know, going back to President Barack Obama, it's that it's given them a, you know, financial advantage over, you know, coal fire, fire plants, natural gas plants. And so there's an, there's an imbalance in the market that has been created by this outside distortion. That's the argument that a lot of Republicans are making. And so what we're seeing now that the Texas legislature, uh, back on Monday I wrote a story about how the Texas Senate, as part of their you know, big uh, energy reform package, have included uh, an, a section in that would allow uh, you know, ERCOT, the energy grid monitor, to basically tax solar and wind power companies to make up for their lack of reliability. Uh, we heard in the hearings that the Republicans really would like for those federal subsidies to go away. Right. But since they can't do that, by taxing these groups, they will have taken, you know, basically disincentivized them after the federal government has tried to incentivize oh, right. them, if you're following well, they're along evening, here. They're basically they're trying to cancel out the economic incentive for that. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so this is supposed – this would, you know, ultimately, you know, help the, uh, the you know, gas-fired and coal-fired people kind of get a little bit more advantage of getting their, mm-hmm. you know, fuel to market and putting new costs on solar and wind. You know, it, you know, again, in a Republican world, listen to what we're saying here. They want to basically tax one industry mm-hmm. to help out another part of the industry. Uh, so, which you don't hear too often, right. you know, in Republican circles as a a, 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 a real strategy. Well, it sounds like they don't like the federal government, quote unquote, picking winners and losers in the market. So they're going to pick them for them. Or they're going to try to. <laughs> Is that right? To, to a large degree, that's what we're hearing mm-hmm. here, and it's like, and it's just interesting, you know. At time, you got to remember, solar and wind have been so critical to Texas. Sure. Like, you know, those renewable energies have now surpassed uh, all other. You know, in ten years, mm-hmm. those those went from being minimal in the Texas electrical Huge grid now. to now being the second biggest producer. Mm-hmm. Of electricity for us, they have surpassed nuclear power. They have surpassed, you know, coal-fired plants. You know, they are a major part, and that's why our utility bills are so much lower mm-hmm. than other parts of the right. nation because of solar and wind. It's so cheap now to get onto the grid that it's really helping keeping our bills down. And so, what the legislature is doing is trying to counteract that because, you know, gas and coal aren't as cheap. And so it's it's a weird world when you start kind of piecing it together from traditional Republican views to what we're seeing right yeah, now. Absolutely, happening. I would note that uh, the proliferation of solar and wind energy in Texas began under noted liberal Rick Perry, 
when he was <laughs> when he was the governor. Um, one other thing, somewhere his ears are burning when you said no to liberal. Rick one Perry. <laughs> other thing um, about the Texas Senate this week. It was uh, earlier in the week they debated an abortion-related bill, and this is pretty unique. Um, we have heard oh, yeah. about the quote-unquote heartbeat bill, the fetal uh, heartbeat bill, in several legislatures and in other places. And correct me if I'm wrong. In other places, what they're doing is just banning abortions at six weeks, basically. If a fetal heartbeat can be detected, then the abortion would be illegal in most cases under those other pieces of legislation. Um, And what critics have said, and as far as I can tell, this checks out, um, most women do not know at six weeks of pregnancy that they were pregnant in the first place, right? So it amounts to a complete ban on abortion. This is as far as any state would have gone so far. Uh, since Roe versus Wade, right? And uh, I think uh, it was the governor of Arkansas just recently who said when they passed one of these measures, uh, and I don't know all the details about their uh, their bill, but he did say, uh, Asa Hutchison, uh, the, the governor there, he did say that the reason they were passing the bill is to test whether Roe v. Wade should still, hand up, should still stand up. Um, this bill in Texas is different. How so, Jeremy? You, you were listening to testimony and the arguments about this on the floor. Yeah, I've spent a lot of time kind of looking at this bill and going through this and uh, spoke to a lot of those, uh, you know, abortion rights advocacy groups about it. And they say, you know, let's be clear, what Texas is trying to do in the heartbeat bill is, quote, uniquely worse than anything they've seen elsewhere, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is saying something based on kind of what you're seeing in Arkansas, mm-hmm. what we've heard in places like North Dakota and Alabama, which have all tried to do bans. Mm-hmm. That what this you know bill would do would you know it takes the government completely out of the banning of abortion in one way okay. and that you know instead of you know Texas law enforcement being in charge in enforcing this law what they're allowing people to do is you know any person in Texas would be allowed to sue the doctor who may have performed an abortion after that heartbeat was detected so again this, these are regular you know private citizens. Anybody. It doesn't have to be anybody related to the woman. It doesn't even have to be in the same city. It could be like a guy in Amarillo who's just, you know, really upset that a woman in Houston mm-hmm. uh, got an abortion and he can now sue the doctor who performed that abortion. And also, this is the scary part of the bill, at least from a lot of the perspectives of the abortion advocacy mm-hmm. groups, is it also applies to anybody who aided and embedded that woman to get the abortion. So, so what that does that mean? Like works. somebody who drove her to the clinic? Yeah, it can be somebody who drove her to the clinic. Uh-huh. It could be, you know, a mom or dad who paid, you know, gave her the money to get the abortion. Uh-huh. It could be uh, anybody who helped tell her where that abortion clinic was. It could be, it, it, I've heard some it, people say, if she Googled where the abortion clinic was, it's like Google. there's a potential you could sue Google for helping send this woman uh, knowingly to a clinic uh, when, you know, she had a heartbeat, you know, in, in the fetus. So if a woman was seeking an abortion and you texted her a link to where the clinic is, they could go after you Oh yeah. under this bill? Wait, is that wait, right? And, and one of the points that a lot of the women, you know, particularly in the Texas Senate have been trying to make is that you are isolating a woman who's already going through a pretty traumatic time, right? right? You know, it's like if they're going through this process of having to decide whether or not, you know, to have an abortion, you're now making sure that if she talks to anybody about this, you're making them accomplices to something that could be sued. And so I think it was um, uh, Senator Sarah Eckhart 
uh, on the you know floor. She's from uh, a Democrat from Austin. Mm-hmm. She said you're isolating these women at a really important time where they really need you know, the comfort and the counsel of friends and family even more. But now you've made those friends and family potentially liable to lawsuits from again a guy from Amarillo or Midland or El Paso not even in your community mm-hmm. that could sue you. And the, the other thing to remind, remind people of this, there is no exception in this bill for rape and incest. Okay. So like now you're getting into some pretty, you know, dark areas mm-hmm. where like a woman who is trying to get an abortion uh, after a rape is going to be, you know, have friends and family sued mm-hmm. if that, if they help get that abortion. So what they're doing when they, um, say that they're allowing people to sue is they're creating what's called a cause of action. If you don't know what a cause of action is, it's like um, wrongful death is a cause of action. You can sue over that, right? Um, And it's my understanding, Jeremy, that in the last 35 years in Texas, at least, it has been a mission of the Republican Party to cut down on the number of what they would call frivolous lawsuits in this state. Creating new causes of action and new reasons to sue people would seem to fly in the face of that. Over the last few decades in Texas, a lot has been done by the business community through the Republican Party to cut down on lawsuits, and in particular, cut down on lawsuits against doctors. Right. I mean, the, yeah. the same party that gave us medical malpractice uh, reform, tort reform, is the party that's now creating this cause of action. Now, I saw some of the debate on this, and Senator Hughes, who's carrying this bill just like he was carrying the elections bill, just like he's carrying the bill on um, the uh, on this lawsuits against – and this also creates a cause of action – lawsuits against Facebook and Twitter – if they are believed to have censored conservative speech, he was asked about creating causes of action and how often that happens. I think it was Senator Jose Menendez, a Democrat from San Antonio, who asked him about it. And he said, is that something we do a lot around here, create causes of action? And I'm thinking about this from the standpoint of what the business community must think about this. Um, You have Brian Hughes, a conservative senator from Mineola, Texas, East Texas, He is a plaintiff's attorney. He is a civil litigator, and he is a very conservative legislator. I'm thinking about the former chairman of the Harris County Republican Party, Jared Woodfill, also a plaintiff's attorney, somebody who has done civil litigation. And it's been the case over the last couple of decades that for trial lawyers, which is what Brian Hughes is, it's what uh, Jared Woodfill is, and Woodfill works a lot with uh, Steve Hotze the big arch-conservative Republican there in in Houston. The path into the Republican Party for a trial lawyer is to be as right-wing as possible. But they can't be a moderate Republican because they'd get killed with the business guys, right? So this is the natural consequence of allowing trial lawyers who had traditionally been more aligned with the Democratic Party in their political contributions and, you know, on the whole question of tort reform and everything like that, for Republicans to have allowed the trial lawyers to enter the Republican Party through the far right wing, this is the natural consequence of it. And think of all of the different bills that have either been passed or are now being debated that do this, that create causes of action. People can sue, doctors can sue people who, quote, aid and abet a woman who has an abortion. Um, Think about the fact that during the 2019 session, 
There was a bill called the Born Alive Act, creating causes of action against a doctor if a baby dies, if an, if, if an abortion goes wrong, even though it was already, of course, illegal. It's murder to kill a baby that's already been born. That was one thing. Um, on the Facebook and Twitter question, they're opening up the courthouse doors for you to be able to go down there and sue Facebook and Twitter if you believe that you have been censored by these social media platforms. And on this bill, they're creating a cause of action. You are the one who can just take it on yourself to be the abortion police in Texas and go down to the courthouse and file a lawsuit. Uh, under this bill, as you said, the person doesn't even have to live in the same county with the person yep. they're complaining about, right? You could be in Taylor County and be suing over a woman having an abortion in Harris County. Yeah, and, and that's mind blowing. Everything yeah, just interpre- so one other thing. Everything about this, from the Republican standpoint, has been to limit the ways in which people can sue, right? And, and, well, and this just throws it wide open. Well, and, and there's another wrinkle of this, as if there's not enough wrinkles in this bill already. But there's a wrinkle in this is that, you know, I can sue that doctor. And if I lose, that doctor cannot collect attorney fees from me. Really? So even, it, like, you know, same thing with the, the, if the mom paid for the abortion and, and, and I sued her and it turned out I was wrong, you know, that woman could not get her attorney fees collected. So you see what that sets up. You can sue repeatedly, you know, these people uh, and cost them, you know, thousands of dollars mm-hmm. in court char- costs that they can never recoup. Mm-hmm. And so you could tie up a doctor, you know, who performs abortion it's se- seemingly with one lawsuit after the next, you know, to make sure that and they can't do anything about it. They cannot collect uh, attorney fees. Mm-hmm. Look, there are some statutes that allow you, you know, uh, to be you know, protected from frivolous lawsuits, but you know that's a very legalistic lane to try to prove a frivolous lawsuit. Now, if you just filed a lawsuit against somebody and it turns out you were wrong, uh, that's not frivolous. And so, in each one of those cases, that doctor would have no ability to collect the attorney fees like they would in any other case. Most cases, if you sue somebody and you're wrong, you're going to have to pay their attorney's fees, mm-hmm. or at least they're going to try to get you to. You know, and, it's like, and that's going to be argued in court. This bill would actually ban you from collecting attorney's fees, even if you were you know, charged with performing an abortion and it wasn't true, Remarkable. and you fought it and you won, you would still be out of attorney's fees. We have a special election playing out in Texas, congressional race, um, with several candidates. Now, you had reported that Ron Wright from Tarrant County, Arlington, Texas, was the first a member of Congress in the United States to pass away with COVID-19. Now, he had other issues, right? right? He had uh, lung cancer. He was a a lifetime smoker and and all of that. You have to say that. Uh, But he did pass away. And um, this, of course, leaves an opening in Congress, and people deserve representation. So there's a special election. Several candidates are running, including uh, Ron Wright's wife. Now, this is an interesting race for a few reasons. One, it's a district that Democrats were getting more excited about. Um, in Tarrant County, they have been trending toward the Democratic side. Um, but the Republican still won the seat. Um, Ron Wright won the seat in November. Uh, his wife, Susan Wright, is probably thought to be the favorite in this race. A couple of other people are running, uh, including Jake Elsey, who's a state representative from Waxahachie down in Ellis County. And this guy who I had never heard of. Big Dan Rodeimer. Did you know about this guy? 
Ever? Big Dan. He, so- he sounds like such a true Texan. He does. In fact, I'd like you to, and, and after the podcast, go on YouTube, dear listener, just punch in Big Dan. I don't even think you have to put in Rodeimer. Just Big Dan for Texas, something like that. You'll see this ad, and it's kind of unbelievable. But listen to what he says about the dirtiest jobs in America. There are three of them, and he lists them right out of the gate here. And then he rides a bull out of the gate in the advertisement. Three dirtiest jobs in the world. Professional wrestling, politician, and bull riding. Let's go, boys. So he takes off uh, across the dirt there on the bull. It's a big bucking bull. (laughs) And um, he gets thrown off. Right. That's what happens. Eight seconds yep. is a good ride. Right. I mean, actually, yep. six seconds is a good ride. Eight seconds is, is a perfect ride. Right. I yep. don't think he made it to eight seconds, but but he gets tossed right off of that sucker. We call that bull Nancy Pelosi. It's the beast. Now that's Texas tough, baby. Two out of three dirty jobs done. I'm Big Dan Rodeimer. Texas has big problems. We need a big fighter to solve those problems. The communists in D.C. are ruining America. We have a big problem. Texas, send Big Dan to Congress. I know how to handle Nancy Pelosi and stop her bull And I'll put a boot right in her socialist platform. And just like in every good Texas political advertisement, the boot goes right into some, well, it goes into a cow flop. That's what we yeah. call it. That's when we were kids, they would let us call it, call it a cow flop. You know, you, you don't want to, yep. don't use the curse word. Right. We don't want to do that. Jeremy, this is all fake. I mean, this is so fake. It's unbelievably fake. I don't even know how to say how fake it is. This guy, Big Dan Rodeimer, he's originally from New Jersey and he ran for Congress in Nevada just last year and lost. And President Trump was, you know, with him. He liked the guy. I I don't know that he endorsed him, but he gave him a big shout out and at one of his events. And he was talking about Big Dan Rodimer. President Trump said Rodimer, which is not even how you say it. Big Dan Rodeimer, I guess he's also done uh, some professional wrestling, which is one of the one of the jobs that he named. Let me prove to you how fake it is. Uh, and this is how the Internet is just magical. Uh, somebody put together a mashup of Dan Rodeimer, his Rodeimer's uh, television ads from Nevada and from Texas. Here they are side by side. Here's what he sounds like this year. And then you'll hear what he sounded like last year when he was running in Las Vegas. Two out of three dirty jobs done. I'm Big Dan Rodeimer. Texas has big problems. We need a big fighter to solve those problems. I'm Big Dan Rodeimer, and I approve this message because I'm running on my record, while Dan Schwartz runs from his. The communists in D.C. are ruining America. We have a big problem. Texas. I had one arrest in my life while in college. Those charges were dismissed. Send Big Dan to Congress. I know how to handle Nancy Pelosi. And stop her bull I have no convictions and no criminal record. Yet, with the millions of dollars Schwartz makes in China, he's trying to buy our congressional seat. I'm Big Dan Rodeimer. And I have no criminal record. It, um, very, very well, different, uh, right? 
Well, and, and it's funny because so like one of the uh, I saw one of the reports <laughs> that he said afterwards he really did ride that bull for eleven seconds, uh-huh. and I'm like, have you not listened to George Strait songs ever? It's like you're you're waiting for eight. You're waiting for eight. <laughs> well, and then in a- eight eight seconds, everybody in Texas knows that in bull riding it's eight seconds. What what are you doing on a, on a bull for eleven seconds? Ridiculous. I don't uh, and and you know in Nevada he should know that too. They have one of the biggest yes. rodeos in the world in exactly. Las Vegas. He should know that, but of course he doesn't because he's not from there either how many other states is this guy going to go to uh and try to run for congress if it works out and i don't i i don't have a real good sense of the race it's it's a special election it's hard to tell it seems like he's spending quite a bit of money the production value on that uh ad is pretty good if you look at it and you, if you didn't know all the rest of this stuff you might go oh wow he's a real texan look at that guy some of the headlines were failed nevada gop congressional candidate pushes back on claims that he turned up his twang in the new Texas uh, ad, another story went into the fact that um, he was using a body double. For so, oh, so in the story you were talking about, he was saying, and he's been all over the map. He was saying in that one story that you saw that he wrote it for eleven seconds. In another story, he admitted that he used a body double. Now, I'm not going to do a lot of political analysis on this story. I'll just say, well, we'll watch this space. If this guy is able to be successful. It will be because it's a Republican district, at least for right now, until un, unless it flips. They're, and by the way, they're about to get out the uh, crayons and redraw the state again. Uh, so they'll shore that up for the Republicans, I'm sure. Uh, but if he's able to be successful or even you know have a decent showing in this thing, Jeremy, it's because you have so many transplants to Texas who think that they are more Texan than you are. Right. And you've seen this over and over again. I've seen it in Houston, Dallas. Uh, you, you really see it in the suburbs, in the suburban areas. I was talking to a guy from Dallas yesterday who was talking about the fact that there are a lot of people who are brand new to the Republican Party in this state who came from other places. And no question, they're more conservative than the people who are from Texas. Right. It, when it comes to business issues, and sort of the traditional business Republican, like you were talking about with Rick Perry and those folks who were trying to promote a robust uh, fuel mix for our electricity grid and all of that, that's one style of Republican. The new Republican is the one who believed President Trump when he talked about windmills causing cancer or something. You remember yeah. that quote? <laughs> yeah. So, so that's where they're at with that. I, I'm done. Are you done? That's an hour I of show. Done. That's an hour of show. It's all like I would do more. But it's all I can do after being up with the Texas Senate till 2 a.m. As I like to tell people, we do it so that they don't have to, to watch all this stuff. All right, now the plugs. If you enjoy the show, you know you do. You've listened for an hour. You should be a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, however you listen to your favorite podcast. Jeremy's work appears each and every day at HoustonChronicle.com. And for up-to-the-minute intelligence on what's happening in your state government, go to QuorumReport.com. Click subscriptions, and we'll get you signed up. And we'll see you right here next week.